Welcome to Mighty Buildings Podcast. Each episode features architects, home builders, and industry professionals sharing their experiences, failures, and successes. At the end of each episode, we'll dive into how Mighty Buildings relates to the conversation through our use of 3D printing, robotics, and automation. This week's guest is uh, Jackie Selby, who is the executive director of the Memento Foundation, and uh, which r- oversees the, and runs the Mistletoe Research Fellows, which is an awesome program that we are lucky enough uh, to be a part of the initial cohort of. And so, Jackie, uh, could you tell us a bit about, well, why don't you just introduce yourself? You've had an amazing, amazing journey. So. Sure. So, Sam, as you said, I'm the executive director of Memento Foundation, and I'm also the tech evangelist for the Mistletoe Inc. Global Community, also known as the Mistletoe Collective Impact Community, which is an organization that has partners around the world who are really interested in the future of humanity and how we can bring sustainability and technology and innovation into that. So again, with our program, the Mistletoe Research Fellowship, that's an initiative that's actually comprised of two different programs that work together. We have a grants program where we're funding scientists, uh, specifically postdocs and PhD candidates who are working at the frontiers. And also on the other side, our accelerator program is working with startup entrepreneurs, again, at the frontiers who are working with technologies that have little mass market adoption. Um, and with a social impact. So it's it's quite the interesting niche, but we like to think that it's an important position to be bringing together academia, entrepreneurs, and civil society. Totally, and that's something that I really just always found wonderful about the program when we were involved with it, was kind of that unique approach to look at what what does it look like to be a startup and how do you then connect that with all these amazing academics who are doing incredible work, but more and more are finding barriers to furthering their career within the academic space, but have so much to offer uh, startups and even more broadly the entrepreneurial space. So we like to think of ourselves as solving two kinds of problems where on the academic side, we have this massive problem in the U.S. where a lot of people don't realize that there is a huge glut of talent in Ph.D. programs, especially in STEM. Uh, the last time I checked the statistics, there were 60,000 STEM postdocs in the United States, and that doesn't even include the Ph.D. candidates who are going to become probably postdocs. And something like you know 90 plus percent of them are not going to become professors. So what do we do with that immense human capital, right? Because we don't want them to drop out of science. We want them to make a great contribution to society. But at the same time, PhD programs and postdoc programs aren't really catering to those soft skills that you have to develop to make that kind of impact in the private sector or the public sector. So then on the other side of things, we have startups who have you know, a similar gap in terms of some of the skills that they have to develop. Typical accelerator program is going to focus on basically two things, right? Can you pitch? Uh, Can you pitch? Can you pitch? Can you pitch? And also, how good are you at raising money? And beyond (laughs) those things for a hardware startup, they're not going to be focusing on some of the critical gaps that get you from building the product to building a company around that product. So when we think about that, we're thinking about skills like project management, outsourcing, et cetera, but you can't really teach those in some kind of weekend workshop. You have to create an actual collaboration where people are going to work on that in a low risk environment. So that's why we bring together our teams of startups and our postdocs and 
they're kind of playing this, you know, consultant and, uh, and client kind of role. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's fascinating because when you lay it out like that, it just makes so much sense. And the fact that it kind of, it hasn't existed before, um, is, is kind of amazing. And I'm kind of curious, how did you, how did, uh, it kind of come into being? So the need for this isn't new. I think I'm, I'm really far from the first person to have thought of the fact that, that this collaboration has to happen. Yeah. Startups are very interested in working with academics, especially when they're in a deep tech space, right? Because <laughs> academics are where a lot of the interesting research is happening in biotech and hardware. The problem is that previously uh, there hadn't been a lot of uh, leeway in how to overcome some of the barriers to collaboration. So I'm just going to hit on a few of them. One is that we've got a massive difference in institutional size, right? So your average startup has a tiny team of less than 10 people, maybe less than five mm -hmm. people. And then they want to be partnering with an academic institution, which is going to have probably tens of thousands of employees. So there you already have kind of a negotiations issue. Then if you can surpass that, well, intellectual property is going to be a really big deal. So everybody knows that uh, universities are uh, very big oh, yeah. in the intellectual property <laughs> game these days. And, you know, they are typically willing to license out IP. But when you're a startup that's working with something that uh, is, is really radical tech in a lot of ways, you need to have as much control over the IP as possible. And that often, I think, precludes you from working with academia. Has that been, uh, you know, your experience, not just with Mighty Buildings, but just seeing with peer industry? Oh, de definitely. Like, as I mean, that's IP is always one of the, like, we can have great conversations with various partners and it's going wonderfully. And then we get to the IP conversation. Mm -hmm. And and that's always a really difficult one. Um, and sometimes it means that we don't move forward with certain part partnerships because we, we're not able to get to a point where both sides are feel good about kind of that IP positioning. Um, and so it definitely can, can be a big issue. I like to, I to do what I call the time machine test where I'll say to the university, okay, if I invented a time machine, but I did it with my own time and my own resources in my garage off campus, would you still say that under the university policies, it belongs to you or not? And while it would seem to be clear that because I don't use any university resources, that time machine would be mine. Uh, it's actually a massive gray area and institutions differ a heck of a lot in how they're going to deal with that. And so trying to be able to come to an agreement that makes both parties feel really, really comfortable and not have too much sacrifice is where Memento Foundation has made huge strides. We're able to, to come, well, we're able to create a platform, I would say, right, where we are a middleman who's reducing risk for the university institutions and also for the startups. On the university side, they know that Memento is going to make sure that startups aren't going to be brokering backroom deals that they don't understand where their employees, right? Because you have to remember that the postdocs, they are university employees. They're not going to be doing side contracts that conflict with their employment agreements. They're not going to have an issue where there are, uh, you know, private research from their lab that's going to be leaking out. Because a lot of this yeah. is about education, right? People want to do good. But it's really hard with all of these different policies for scientists on their own to understand what is okay and what isn't okay. 
and the university simply doesn't have the resources to be doing education on this level. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think based on our experience, I think you guys do a phenomenal job of kind of creating that that framework to make it easy for startups because you've already done that, gone through that negotiations with the university. You've already got them uh, on board with kind of the IP structure that you've put forward. And then that makes it easy for us as a startup to then step into that uh, and not have to go through that whole uh, negotiation ourselves. And because that, that alone can take six months or more. Um, as, as you guys, yeah, um, can get really messy and then you bring the lawyers in and then it gets expensive. And so that, that definitely, that was a real, real wonderful aspect of the program that we, along with the phenomenal, uh, team that we had. And so, so, yeah, I, I think that's, that's true. Even if you can get the right people to the table, it's going to be extremely challenging. And this is already yeah. knowing that on all sides, people want to come to a compromise. It's just generally incredibly difficult. And so what we're trying to do is, uh, you know, create protections and room for innovation at the same time. And so on the university side, as I said, they feel reassured that their resources are going to be respected, that uh, we're going to take over the education component. But on the startup side, they also know that when they come in with that proprietary IP that they have worked at, right, like to create their MVP, to create their prototype, to bring it to market, that they're not going to be risking that just because they decided to collaborate with academics. Yeah, I mean, we, we loved our time in the program and uh, it's been exciting to see it continue and grow. And you guys have worked with some really, really cool uh, tar- uh, startups in a, in a bunch of different areas. And I don't know if maybe there's a couple you want to maybe highlight or at least kind of some of the areas you want to highlight. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, what we like to do is also with Frontier Technology, bringing the different startups together into this space, right? Help them. Well, actually, hold on. Let me let you take one step back. I realize some of our uh, listeners may not be from uh, Frontier Tech. You and I both know what that what that means, but I realize some of our listeners may not be. I was wondering if maybe you want to take a step back, define what for you what that, what that means, so that we can make sure they understand what we're talking about. I'm going to define it the way that we do at the foundation. Right? This may not be the Great. universal definition for Frontier Tech, but this is how we look at it. I'd say that there are three pillars. The first and most obvious is that frontier tech is tech that is new, right? Okay, so that's one thing we can all agree on. But the next two are that frontier technology is technology that cannot yet have mass market adoption. And then the third pillar is that frontier tech is technology that does not yet have an ecosystem around it. So let's take the example, right, of electric vehicles. So it's not good enough to build an electric vehicle. You also have to build an ecosystem of charging stations and infrastructure. And that's going to be a really, really big deal because the startups that we work with tend to be working with technology that even if the startup can advance it, they're going to have to work with ecosystem partners to make things possible. So all of those three things together are what makes it frontier Mm -hmm. technology and what makes adoption this uh, really unique and, and challenging arena. Does that sound about right, Sam? That, that sounds perfect. Yeah, no, that fit, definitely fits with, with my vision of what Frontier Tech is. And on top of that, you guys are also then adding the layer of social impact, which I think is really one of the exciting things about what you're doing as well. Yes. So I think social impact is really, really huge here because with Frontier Technologies, because they may not be cost efficient initially, we need to look at uh, bringing more players into the marketplace because if we don't look at the social impact potential and we don't make sure that we're supporting new market entrants, 
then the only companies that can even afford to deal with frontier tech are going to be, you know, the Googles and Apples of this world. And while we love Google and Apple for the convenience and the amazing products that they can bring us, that's not ultimately going to be great for variety, right? And also uh, for the bottom billion necessarily. Mm-hmm. But just to turn it around quickly, I'd love to hear with Mighty Buildings, you know, how, how you found that to be as a frontier tech company. Would you say that those that I've named are the challenges that you faced? They definitely are as key aspects of the challenges we faced. I mean, obviously, with what we're doing, there we and I think part of it's we've advanced since we first engaged uh, with you guys. Um, but yeah, I mean, because part of it, like we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing, particularly with our longer term vision, without engaging with the broader ecosystem of builders and developers and people who are already in the space. Because again, our goal at the end of the day is disruption through collaboration. We want to be a tool for that industry. And so in that regard, yeah, we totally need to be able to work with the, uh, the legacy players in that ecosystem. For us, because of the changes in California state law, we were in a unique position to be able to bring a product to market that we could then move, for, move forward with in terms of our ADUs. Um, but at the same time, that was, if not for the ADUs, it would have been a much longer uh, a more difficult process, if not for those changes in the state regulations. Um, so yeah, so I think that definitely definitely fits with uh, kind of where where we've been um, along our journey, and particularly when we connected with you guys. Mm-hmm. And of course, the ADU, the adjacent dwelling unit, right? A special form of housing that still falls under housing regulation, and that's what we find with a lot of our, oh, our yeah. social impact startups is that they're working with products that are highly regulated because they are so fundamentally important to people whether it is something like housing or transportation or medical devices, there's that whole extra layer that the startup has to come to understand. And that's where outside collaboration becomes even more critical because they can't have all of that expertise on their own lean team initially. I think Mighty is really lucky to have somebody like you with your regulatory background Agreed. to start, but, yeah. but that's odd, isn't it? It's, yeah, I mean, it's pretty pretty unique. That and also that we have such a focus on sustainability as Kind of, I mean, the fact that we have a chief sustainability officer and that it's built right into our mission from day one. Um, and so, yeah, I think those were things about us that are pretty unique and definitely differentiators. But something that, particularly as more as more startups come into these highly regulated spaces, that I'm hoping we'll see more and more people with that kind of policy background and that ability to to really navigate uh, the, that public private, because obviously so much of that has to do with what are you saying, how are you speaking. Um, because I find, I mean, and would love to hear your experience because I know you're similarly have worked kind of across sector, across sectorally. But so often in my experience, we have the public sector, we have the private sector, and we have the civil society. They're trying to achieve the same goals, but they're actually fighting for resources because they're not realizing they're trying to achieve the same goals because they talk about it so differently, and they have different and and yet there's so much opportunity to bring them together in order to maximize those strengths and mitigate those weaknesses. So I think part of the difficulty is that while they recognize that they do have the same goals, they don't understand uh, each other's mechanisms for achieving them. And uh, the way that they deal with capital and risk is also really, really different. And when they don't understand the other party's risk profile or how to address that, each party uh, thinks of it as kind of a zero-sum game. would love to hear about some of your favorite startups, because uh, obviously... 
as we mentioned, there's some really cool ones uh, that we were in a cohort with. I know you've had some really awesome ones since then as well. Absolutely. So Sam, we've had 20 startups that have participated with us. And of course, they're all my favorite startup, but we highlight a couple examples for you that I think kind of capture the public imagination. And so in, in the same cohort as you, the pilot cohort, we uh, had Aronas, they're building drones that are golf cart sized and that's uh, their first market is to clean wind turbines, but they're also looking at that drone technology to do things like search and rescue or fight wildfires. Again, in that same cohort, we also had Sunu. They're doing haptic feedback wristbands that help people who are visually impaired. So that's incredible because previously there really wasn't much between the $30,000 seeing eye dog, right? And uh, the $30 white cane. And then in more recent cohorts, a couple I'd like to highlight just to show the variety. We've had mom incubators. They're doing portable infant incubators, uh, you know, inspired by use in migrant and refugee camps. And, and that's absolutely huge because the typical infant incubator is, again, just thousands and thousands of dollars. And the basic incubator that's needed in most of the world is just something that can provide a safe uh, environment for heat and ventilation. And then we also have, uh, this is really exciting, Frontier Bio that's doing, again, 3D printing, just like you guys, but tissue printing, which may eventually be organ printing. Yeah, no, that's one of, the, one of my favorite other than construction, one of my favorite areas that I'm seeing uh, 3D printing being deployed more and more. And I mean, the opportunity is to, yeah, and, wh and where they're headed, particularly looking at head to when they, to organs. Uh, I mean, the idea of on-demand organ replacement um, to deal with the inefficient, to eliminate the need, all the inefficiencies in our organ donation programs and, and, every, and all the matching issues that they run into. Absolutely. And this is an example of a startup, which when it started in our program had less than five people, but is working in one of the most challenging of spaces. So we're really, really excited to be able to support entrepreneurs with those kinds of big ambitions. Yeah, and it's it's amazing to be counted among such a uh, such a really cool list. So you guys do, I, I will say, you do an amazing job of tracking down some of the coolest startups out there. So anyone who's interested, uh, MementoFound.org is a great spot to check out, particularly if you're a startup doing cool stuff. Just, it's always fun getting a chance to talk to Jack. All right. So I'm just going to put in the plug that to find out more about us, go to MementoFound.org. That's M-O-M-E-N-T-A-L. <laughs> and uh, Sam, thanks again for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure and can't wait to have you back. Bye.